These are the stories and lasting impressions of growing up in kind of an out-of-the-way place. It's got a funny name. You've heard it before, probably in the punchline of some comedy act. It's the place they use to conjure an American nowhere at the end of the road. They imply it's some kind of armpit. How dare they? Yes, I'm talking about Duluth, Minnesota. That's where I was born and raised. My name is Jim Hayden, and this is your invitation to spend some time with me now, sharing my Duluthian life. Let me tell you about my hometown, greatest in the gopher state. I'll have to brag a little bit, but I really won't exaggerate. Big D, U, L, U, T, H, Duluth, Duluth. Oh, that's my hometown, Duluth, Duluth. Oh, that's my I decided to start this memoir in sound because I have CST. Yes, I'm a compulsive storyteller. I can't stop myself. Just ask any of my friends. They've been subjected to this for decades, but they don't seem to mind too much, or at least they've been too polite to just shut me up. So now it's going to be your turn. <laughs> Lucky you. Okay, you gotta wonder, what in the hell qualifies me to take up your time with something revolving around Duluth, Minnesota? I mean, I was born and raised in Duluth, but I don't even live there anymore. The shores where I live now are along the Pacific Ocean, not uh, on Lake Superior. But Coming from Duluth is like an ethnic heritage, I say. You know, it's like when I say I'm Irish. I mean, okay, I've been there, but it's not where I was born. It, it's just where a lot of my ancestors come from. So I say I'm Irish. Well, if I'm Irish, then I certainly can say I'm a Duluthian, whether I'm living there right now or not. It's still part of who I am. So, uh, what you're in for, if you decide to stick it out, uh, are chapters from the book of my life, my Duluthian life. I had no idea uh, in these moments as fate was writing this book, taking me on these adventures of living and learning, that someday I might pause and look back through those pages. Well, that's what I'm going to do now. So let's page through this imaginary book of the mind, uh, jotting some chapter headings, all right? Let's brainstorm just a few out of a whole lot of possibilities. Uh, I was born uh, the son of a mother who grew up in a railroad family on the Iron Range. That's in northern Minnesota, Chisholm to be exact. 
My dad was raised in poverty, in a shack, really, uh, on Duluth's Bay, right, right under what is now the north on-ramp uh, onto the interstate high bridge, as we call it. My Irish dad's dad hauled lumber with a, a team of horses he named Pat and Mike. Their big job was supplying the timbers to build the ore docks. My mother's dad, the railroad man, and by all accounts a very sentimental, uh, affectionate Irish husband, was so in love with Grandma, his wife. But then he died uh, in her arms. It was a train coupling accident. His midsection uh, got caught in between couplings, uh, and they didn't—they uh, didn't uncouple the train uh, right away. That's how the family story goes. They—they they sent for Grandma, his wife, who he always called lover, by the way, so she could be there to be with him. Uh, She said he was alive and uh, lucid, uh, but the rail workers knew what would happen when they released that coupling that he was caught in. They, They knew that that would be it. And it was. Okay, Okay, chapter headings, chapter headings, headings with endless side stories. (laughs) Uh, When I came along, um, I already had two sisters and a brother, but they were much older. I was uh, kind of an unintended development, you might say, a Catholic accident, it's been called. Mom thought she was finally in the clear, but no. Surprise! (laughs) So, I was the baby of the family, uh, for all that would foretell about me. But it turns out the influence of Catholicism on my family went well beyond just the circumstances of my conception. The family was shot through and through with Catholics and Catholicism. My dad's family, living in that shack that I mentioned, realized that farming some of the kids out to convents and seminaries was just good financial planning. Uh, I think it's how the Irish survived, actually, uh, for centuries. Uh, Religion. Catholicism. So, as I grew up, I always had this aunt who was a nun and this uncle uh, who was a priest, Sister Benita and Father Jim. Yeah, they named me after my dad's brother, Jim, the priest who went on to become pastor of Duluth's Sacred Heart Cathedral. 
So there's this whole Catholic thing, uh, multiple, juicy, guilt-infused chapters. And then, um, let's see. On my mother's side, the McGarrity's, there were her two brothers, Kenneth and Bertram, both natural-born musicians. They became uh, band leaders in the 30s and 40s. They toured in buses, you know, with, with their band uh, and played, uh, you know, gigs, like sometimes carried on the radio, you know. From the Monongahela Ballroom in the Des Moines Ritz Hotel, we bring you dinner and dancing to the music of, you know, like that. It was the big band era. Kenny, I am told, died young. I never met him, but Mom sure did love him. Um, Always talked about him. Uncle Bert, he's the one I got to know, the other brother. Uh, He played the trumpet, the clarinet, the piano, uh, composer, arranger, conductor. He went on to compose uh, synthesized music on the Moog. He moved the family to um, California and became the founder of the whole music department of California State University, Long Beach. To this day, there's still a a page online uh, dedicated to Uncle Bert uh, on the Cal State Long Beach website. Um, Let's see. Okay. um, What else? Uh, Well, okay. (laughs) Um, There's the ships. Uh, The bulk freighters. Uh, that come and go to and from Duluth. There, right on cue. Uh, That's how my dad supported us, and it was a damn good living. Certainly by the standards he grew up in, you know, through the Depression. He made good money, and they ate well out there. Compensation, I guess, for, you know, all the loneliness and isolation, and boredom. But realizing that, the shipping fleet that Dad worked for um, tried very hard to keep families together by letting them come on board for trips uh, up and down the Great Lakes. Now, in my book, (laughs) uh, that was a fantasy come true. Here I was, this little boy, and I had this whole ship to play with. Uh, When school (laughs) let out for the summer, I was sailing on those ships with my dad like every chance I got. And as I got a little older, I I really had the run of the place. I got to know every cranny from the engine room to the bridge, uh, begging all those poor bedraggled crewmen into letting me try out a little bit of everything there is to do on a big ship, and that's a lot. Uh, Fun for a kid. But the reality of commercial sailing, of shipping, isn't always such a laugh. Uh, My dad's ship was the 
very same kind as the Edmund Fitzgerald, you know, in the, in the Gordon Lightfoot song, the ship that went down in a gale, terrible gale, one night on Lake Superior with all hands. I'm going to uh, be able to tell you that story in, in one of these chapters, uh, kind of from the inside out, uh, uh, the way a sailing family can get to know it. So, by now you must be getting the idea. I, I can't even begin to list the chapter headings. Uh, I, I, got, I got to be a news cameraman for the local CBS uh, affiliate in Duluth when I was still in high school. A uh, few stories there, for sure. I got a uh, used sailboat built in Sweden, 28 feet long. Uh, you know, got it used. Uh, learned to sail and uh, roamed most of Western Lake Superior. Uh, back then, uh, I think when most dads were chiding their sons for dodging the Vietnam draft, uh, my dad was lecturing me on how crazy it was to go sailing out in that lake. <laughs> he used to say, I've seen a little too much out there, Jim. But, you know, he never, he never really tried to stop me. Uh, he just refused to go with me. But, okay, enough about me. What about Duluth? Let's get started. Let's go. Come with me. first thing your eyes behold arriving in Duluth is that it's built on this really steep hillside, like 800 feet top to bottom. If you squint and use your imagination a little, you could almost be in San Francisco. You see that? No? Okay, squint a, a little harder. How about now? Well, okay, then close your eyes and just picture San Francisco. See? Amazing. Now, if you turn and look the other way, uh, you can open your eyes now, you'll see this gigantic body of water. It just goes off to the horizon like when you look out over the ocean. That's Lake Superior. And it's Lake Superior and all of the outdoorsy adventures surrounding it that bring three and a half million tourists to Duluth every year. Yes, that's what the Chamber of Commerce says. Think about it. 3.5 million tourists coming to a town of about 85,000 yokel, lo <clears throat> uh, locals. Wow. And this is Duluth's tourism ground zero, Canal Park, alongside the piers where the ships come and go to and from Duluth's harbor. Where you're standing uh, used to be nothing but piles of junked cars and uh, grimy warehouses. That was back then, when I was just a kid and Duluth was just a rusty smokestack town. Uh, it was an oily, smelly, toxic place around the waterfront. Now, uh, wow, enclaves of cutesy brick and fern boutiques, uh, art galleries, brew pubs, uh, even an artisan distillery, and lots of 
pricey hotel rooms. In the olden days, and it goes back about 150 years, there was a time when Duluth was moving more tonnage of cargo than New York City. Yes, New York City. But then it's by tonnage and iron ore is heavy, right? But now Duluth still has the biggest all-natural freshwater harbor in the world. So there. But back then, all that freight was just moving around the Great Lakes until in the 1950s, they got it figured out so that ships from all over the world could sail down the St. Lawrence Seaway through Canada and into the Great Lakes. That made Duluth the farthest inland seaport in the world. Seriously, have a look at your atlas. So, we have all these ships from all over the world coming from the Atlantic Ocean and then through the Great Lakes to Duluth. Wheat is the big foreign export. You remember the Russian wheat? <laughs> I, I think it came mostly from Duluth. Uh, they harvested on those, you know, amber waves of grain all over the Midwest, and then they truck it to Duluth and into all these grain elevators uh, along the harbor. The other big export is something called taconite. Those are pellets of concentrated iron ore from huge open pit mines, these man-made canyons around northern Minnesota. The taconite goes to steel mills off to the east, Gary, Indiana, Dearborn, Michigan, Cleveland, Ohio, so on. So, one thing Duluthians share in common is this sense of connection with the coming and going of these ships these great big steel freighters arriving and departing to and from voyages all over the world. There's this feeling here of belonging to a seafaring life. And this, above all, is also what attracts all these millions of tourists that spend three quarters of a billion dollars a year here. They come down to Canal Park. In the summer months, huge crowds, tourists, and some locals if they're maybe hosting rallies from out of town, you know? You're standing on this pier, and almost literally, you're within spitting distance of these massive freighters arriving and departing. Now, like every few hours, it, it is kind of an impressive spectacle, even if you've seen it before. So, let me now direct your attention to this main attraction, the ritual, the event, the show these people paid so much to see and hear. The excitement begins with the sighting of a ship, way out on the horizon. As it gets closer, the crowd slowly grows. First, just a few folks who might have been feeding the seagulls. Uh, they give them uh, this popcorn they buy at uh, the Little Red Popcorn Wagon. Um, I don't know if that's good for seagulls, but um, they do it anyway. And uh, the seagulls, you know, they seem happy. This drama unfolds as the ship draws closer. It's those warning bells starting up on the roadway that goes over the bridge 
Yes, the aerial bridge. The aerial lift bridge, to be exact. This uh, intricate steel lattice work spans 390 feet north to south, and the whole middle of it lifts straight up, taking 1,000 tons of roadway and sidewalks up there with it. Uh, goes up to a height that can clear the top of a ship 13 stories high. But before the aerial bridge can open up, out of the way of a ship, the traffic on Lake Avenue has to be stopped. So you hear this gong. The red lights flash, and then the bridge operator brings the gates down, first for the oncoming lanes, entering the bridge. And then he waits until the last car has made its escape over to the other side, and then he closes the rest of the gates. Next, the bells warn that the span is in motion. It's rising, while those 500-ton concrete counterweights on both ends descend, taking the strain off of these 225 horsepower uh, electric motors that uh, do the lifting. The bells stop. In the sudden silence, you see the ship looming ever larger. It won't be much longer now to witness the moment we've all been waiting for, and it will not disappoint. It's a tradition called the Captain's Salute. A long and two shorts. bridge answers with its two air horns from locomotives. The ship is the James R. Barker, 1,004 feet in length, more than three football fields and 120 feet longer than the Titanic. It's gliding past the concrete pier we're standing on smoothly into the harbor. Now, the Barker is what we call a laker, meaning a ship that just travels the Great Lakes. The foreign ships, the ones that come in from the ocean, we call those salties. They're an awesome sight for the tourists and for locals. But for me, it runs deeper than most. I was born to a dad whose career it was to sail on some of those ships, the Lakers, for a company with the bigness of heart to want to keep their sailors' families together. So they allowed the more senior crew members, the officers, the married guys, to bring family along with them on trips. My first one was way before I would have remembered. I was a baby, just months old, in my mother's arms. Growing up on board those big ships, 
was just a part of life for me. And I got to see a lot, not just um, of these huge inland seas we call the Great Lakes, but also of life on board. It was an interesting culture to observe. Uh, People from all walks of life, people from other places, uh, people like we didn't have uh, back in Duluth. So I got to see things and, and do things. I never could have any other way. And that's part of the cargo. (laughs) I'm getting ready to unload. Like so much of my Duluthian life, these memories and their impressions have proven to be lifelong, an indelible impact. That's what this series is all about. And there's a lot more to come. You know, even though I was born and raised in Duluth, when I started researching this series, I found out so many fascinating things, little known facts and histories I never knew before. So this is my chance to share it all with you. We'll find out how Duluth got that name and what it has to do with a 17th century European fashion craze. We'll relive some scary and sad things I learned firsthand about living with Lake Superior, its treacherous history, and why it never gives up its dead. We'll discover that Duluth was actually armed with an array of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. Did you know that? I didn't until I started digging for this series. On the softer side, we'll delve into the soul-searching conflicts between um, teenage dating and the Catholic confessional. We'll touch on some of the finer nuances about canoeing in the Boundary Waters and some of Duluth's cultural quirks, from fishing for smelt to the reasons we talk funny. You know, and I can fall right back into it even now, (laughs) you know, When I'm back home saying stuff like ishy and cripes, you betcha. So stay with me. It's all just over the horizon in my Duluthian life. My Duluthian Life with Jim Hayden is produced monthly by Planet Pictures Media. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.